This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Over the coming weeks, we're excited to bring you a special series which will consider some of the big strategic challenges currently faced by Australia and the international community. To kick off the series, The Bigger Picture, Peter Jennings speaks to the Honourable Joe Hockey, former Australian Ambassador to the United States of America and Treasurer of Australia, and founding partner and president of the advisory firm Bondi Partners. They discuss the recent AUKUS announcement, what it was like to be ambassador to the US during the Trump administration, and opportunities for growth in the US-Australia relationship, as well as the challenges that lay ahead. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Joe Hockey, welcome to Policy, Guns and Money. It's great to see you. Great to be with you, Peter. Let's start with the amazing news last week about the announcement of AUKUS. Uh, what, what, in your assessment, is the significance of that development? Well, it's hugely significant because it's putting real meat on the bones of a new treaty. And uh, whilst you know the ANZUS Treaty uh, is a treaty and it's obviously been utilised, uh, this is about capability and overlaying capability on top of uh, an agreement that has been kept secret because it uh, it necessarily involves the detailed interchange of very specific information and capability information uh, in relation to defence, intelligence, cyber, space and a range of other areas. So uh, what does this say about Australia's standing in Washington. Um, were you surprised, for example, that President Biden, and, and I assume this must have been his own decision, um, allowed Australia access to America's highly protected nuclear propulsion technology? Well, there's always been resistance. And whilst there have been people in the US and Australia that have been pushing on that very much closed door for a long period of time, I think at the end of the day, it was a deterioration in the relationships of both countries with China uh, and uh, the the looming challenges in the Indo-Pacific region that compelled the Americans combined with the fact that, that obviously the, the French build was going nowhere, that we needed to have the capability on the ground. And if you're going to do that, you had to put a framework around uh, opening up the crown jewels of the United States to another country. And so it all came together. It, it, there was, when we first considered um, the replacement for the Collins class subs, all too late, but we only just came in in 2014-15, we barely considered nuclear because the Americans just said there's no way we're sharing wow. that information with another country. And it's a bit overstated what they're doing with Britain in that regard, but they, they just weren't going to do it. So that took me by surprise. Yeah. yeah. So as a, when I was a, a senior defence official, which is now a decade ago, I mean, a couple of things. Firstly, for the 2009 defence white paper, the Rudd white paper, the, again, barely a consideration of nuclear yeah. And domestically, the politics weren't there too, Peter. Yeah. There was no way. We've seen a sea change over the last three to five years. And, and the Americans certainly wouldn't have done it. Um, your, your thoughts, Joe, on the British angle to this? Uh, um, they're, they're putting the UK into AUKUS? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I think uh, it is probably directly related to the fact that the Britain's no longer part of the EU 
And so it's a different relationship again now with the, the United Kingdom. And the UK obviously as a previous beneficiary of American technology, particularly in relation to its aircraft carriers, by the way, as you oh, know. Oh. I mean, they were in real trouble and the Americans went in to help them clean up a bit of a mess on their aircraft carriers. So it's an interesting angle and it really is. Um, I think that's where, you know, it's almost a five eyes minus two. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it, it comes down to that capability issue again and, and who really does get access and... Um, I think it's it's probably a safer play for all, all round for the Americans and for the Australians to have the UK there as well. So, Joe, President Biden has said that America has no closer ally than Australia. How does a country Australia's size get that type of standing in Washington, D.C.? In truth, Peter, uh, I mean, it's a combination of factors. The Americans really do like us. Of all the people on earth, we're probably the, the most familiar and similar to Americans. And uh, they, when I going back to when I was tourism minister, American Express would do a survey every year. This is 25 years ago. Oh. Um, what's your favourite country in the world? Where would you most like to go? And it, constantly Australia was number one. And so that does have an impact. Uh, secondly, obviously, the, a bit of a tumultuous start with the Trump administration galvanised support and, you know, I rebuilt the um, Friends of Australia caucus at that time. But at the end of it, there was genuinely no closer country to America than, than Australia, maybe Israel, perhaps. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a different relationship again for the US. And then the third factor is the one issue that is uniting both sides of politics, and this is a massive statement to say there is unity, is concern about China. Mm -hmm. And that's because the United States has never had a single nation that is both an economic threat and a military threat to their leadership and their role in the world. Uh, they've never had one nation encompass both, and China does. And because of its demographics, because of its its wealth, it will be a, a major challenge for the United States for many years to come. So uh, it really, you know, when there was the first turn to Asia, uh, under the Obama administration, and there was a focus on the Pacific, then, you know, everyone wondered how you put meat on those bones. And now we're starting to see, you know, everyone searching deep and hard and widely for those additives that make it real and deal with the challenge. Just, just finally on the AUKUS um, issue, we've also seen an incandescent France, um, and, of course, it's it's entirely understandable to, I, I guess, see understand their disappointment over uh, uh, no new contract being uh, written for them. But, of course, France is a, a close ally of the United States. How, how does the US sort of balance those considerations going forward? Carefully. <laughs> Carefully. Uh, look, America alone will not be able to out-muscle uh, China if China continues its trajectory of, you know, 6% economic growth year on year for the second biggest economy in the world and, you know, a very centralised government that is very focused on managing its people. But America with its allies will be able to stand up to China and, uh, and Russia, by the way. And so I think Joe Biden's always been someone that believes in allies. And uh, whereas Donald Trump 
wasn't really a huge fan of allies. He was, he was America first and alone in many cases. So there's no doubt in my mind that um, Joe Biden's going to do everything he can to placate France. And I think for, for two reasons. Uh, number one, uh, Germany without Merkel is going to be a, a weaker Germany for, for a few years. Uh, and secondly, uh, Macron has his election next year. And the one thing you can be sure of is that uh, Biden and the Democrats don't want to see a, a surge of support for Le Pen. So they will be think, looking at Macron taking over the leadership of the EU early next year. They'll look at the, the presidential election next year, Le Pen running again, a bit of a surge of nationalism in France, and uh, they'll be saying we don't want any risk that Le Pen's going to win. So we will do everything we can to placate Macron without opening up August to France. I mean, that's just not going to happen for obvious unstated reasons. Well, let's go back a little bit to talk about your time as ambassador. For our listeners, Joe, can you take me through what a day in the life of Australia's ambassador in Washington looks like? <laughs> well, I wasn't the conventional ambassador, as I think many people know. And, uh, you know, I wasn't one for... Uh, I didn't write cables because I wasn't sure they wouldn't leak. And uh, the UK ambassador discovered when Whitehall leaked oh. some of his cables about Donald Trump that it's very costly. So, But usually begin the day pretty early getting an update on what happened overnight in Australia and then you go into the embassy. There's more than 350 people in the embassy, probably a third of defence, some, you know, big, quite a big intelligence commitment. Um, and uh, basically it's like being a, a mini prime minister because you've got every department almost represented in the embassy. And so you're dealing with issues across all of the, all of the different portfolios and making sure everyone's coordinated, not just here in Washington, D.C., but also across all the consulates and, and you were making sure they were coordinated and, and, and engaging. And really the consular side of the, the embassy just did its job and kept going. Um, but there'd always be a, a sea of people that would want to come and see you, either internally or externally. And certainly in the Trump administration, there was, you know, every, every you know, there was 25 crises a day that we'd be managing. Um, you try and see people for lunch. Americans aren't into long lunches. So I'd usually have lunches and 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 dinners and organising organising who's coming to those or, or so on as part of the process. Um, networking was very important, uh, and I worked really hard because every ambassador leaves with an incredible list of contacts and starts with a with an empty book. Mm. So you got to keep defining. You've only got a short period of time to define new relationships, build trust, and then move from there. Inevitably, all the drinks and dinners, I mean, I've tried to avoid the cocktail set and you can end up eating and drinking too much, Peter, as you're probably aware. You, and the challenge was that you, you you drink to cope with people you don't like and you drink to party with the people you did. So you know, I was like, I was uh, always tried to be a bit more disciplined about it all. And You know, I found the best, the best things to do were and particularly with the Republican administration. I was, I was there for Obama and it was really, you know, it was good, but they were exhausted when I came in after eight years, seven years. You know, that, it was an exhausted administration. And then Trump came in, it was um, it was crazy, right? And, uh, of course, they were desperately hated by 95% of the people in Washington. So it wasn't hard to, 
you know, first develop relationships and then in, say to them, look, why don't you bring all your staff over for a drink? Safe haven, my place, come over the house. You know, I'm not inviting other people. It's, it's you know, bring your secretaries, your, your stenographers, bring the people that run around, all your team, your team in, in the National Security Committee or your team in in the finance or that part of the West Wing or just just bring them around. My place is a safe haven for you. And that was just invaluable. And, again, that was something different with the Trump administration. Tell us the story of how you actually got in contact with Donald Trump and what, what was he like to work with, Chuck? Well, I, I mean, I do pay tribute to Mick Mulvaney for, for part of it. I mean, he was uh, head of OMB and then he was... Uh, Working in the um, in the White House in the West Wing, and then he was, uh, you know, chief of staff effectively with Donald Trump. But you have to go through the staff, and and then, you know, one day I was, um, you know, the first direct engagement with him was uh, Mick Mulvaney said, "Do you want to play golf out at Trump Course?" And I said, "Sure." And he said, "Well, we have a threesome, including um, Brett Bayer." who's a Fox News anchor over here. And I said, great, we're heading out there on the Sunday. And I could sense something was going on because, you know, there was an increased presence and Mick was saying, uh, you know, and then on the car out there, the call came through confirming that, we're, that Donald Trump wanted to play with us. And, uh, oh, my God, you know, I, I sort of, uh, you know, I was more worried about the fact that I'm not great at golf than I was about me. And uh, you just got to be yourself, Peter. Yeah. I mean, that's a crucial thing in this town. You know, Americans like Australians that are genuine, and they like anyone that's genuine, but there's a lot of fake in this town. And there's fake pretense and fake self-importance, or real self-importance, but, you know, uh, the, the, the most important people in this town are the real people. Yeah. And I think being myself around Donald Trump was a way to, to make sure that he didn't forget who we were. So we had um, a couple of, uh, if not crisis moments, then, you know, certainly sensitive points in Australia's early engagement with Trump. Uh, there was the, the, the infamous Turnbull phone call about the asylum seekers, the deal that Malcolm had cut with Obama. Uh, and then we had Trump's decision to put tariffs on aluminium. How did Australia navigate its way through those moments? Well, you know, I I dealt directly with Prime Minister and directly or indirectly with the President. So I made myself, you know, uh, stepped into the middle of it. And in doing so, was able to air traffic control the relationship. And that's really what a good ambassador should do. Uh, ambassadors from countries in Europe or Canada or South America, they find it rather frustrating if they're in the same time zone as their own prime minister or their president because those presidents and prime ministers are always on the phone to, you know, their counterparts and, or, or to various secretaries, whereas Australia truly is the other side of the world and, and it's a bad time zone. So there is a greater burden that falls on the shoulders of the ambassador and what you do is you just you just got to have access points mm. and you've got to have multiple access points. So, you know, when it came to tariffs on steel and aluminium, people that really went into bat for us were the Pentagon and the intelligence community yeah. and, and, of course, Treasury, where I had pre-existing relationship because I was in my chairing the G20. So, you, you know, you've got to use every tool, and especially with Donald Trump. It was like there, there weren't any norms. There weren't any normal channels. And 
Malcolm Turnbull and I agreed that, it, you know, we both knew Kerry Packer, obviously Malcolm Turnbull, much better than me. And he was a Packer-type character, you know, strong and, and decisive and, you know, but also someone that would make decisions. And when you did, I really dug deep into his personality to identify what the issues were and thought really hard about it. And golf was fantastic for revealing his personality. I mean, you spent three hours on a course with the President of the United States and you start to work out mm. some personality pretty quickly. I mean, there's no other vehicle that you could do that, really. Three hours in a relaxed atmosphere where you're just, the, the four of you are just talking. Yeah. That that gave me a greater insight into, you know, what he viewed as important, what, what sparked his interest. He was an inquisitive guy, Donald Trump. You know, I mean, President Obama was an entirely different character and, and all the presidents. I mean, I've, I've, I've got to know a number of the presidents, not Jimmy Carter, but I knew I've met every other one. And um, President H.W. Uh, Bush was just a really decent guy. Both Bushes were really decent human beings, love a joke, you know, um, uh, and, you know, to the point, but also very relaxed. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Bill Clinton's your best mate. I mean, you sit in a golf cart with him for, in my case, seven hours because he's, you know, always playing the second or third shot. Um, but uh, he, uh, he, you know, he was he was just engaging, the charming person that everyone knows. Uh, you know, President Obama was, you know, more to the point, um, very comfortable, but, you know, sort of to the point, just, you know, more academic. And, and ironically, and most people don't realise this, but Donald Trump was had an inquisitive mind. I mean, he really asked a lot of questions about mm. issues. Mm. It, you know, sometimes they're a bit out there, like, you know, snakes in Australia or, or you know, various things. It could be a range of different things that come out of left field. Right. Um, but um, And President Biden, he's a good talker. I mean, he's the way you talk. He, he talks and talks and, and you know, um, but it's not a, not a, you know, a bullying talk. It's like a conversational talk where he yeah. just keeps going. Yeah. Um, of course, during your time uh, as ambassador, you, you uh, introduced the 100 Years of Mateship campaign, which is almost really the theme of, of, of your period in the job. Does that approach really work with all those hard-nosed policy types in, in what? Oh, my God, yeah. Emotion works. Emotion works, in, you know, in the United States. The glue that holds this country together is pride in the flag and, you know, the Constitution and the values that underpin it and the fact that we're the only country in the world to have fought side by side with the United States in every single major conflict for 100 years. I mean, the Brits weren't in Vietnam. By the way, we're probably the only major ally of the United States that hasn't had a war with when you think about it, right? <laughs> How to go with the Canadians or the Mexicans or the yep. Brits. Let's keep going, right, it's through a list, right? So... And they like us. They love us in many cases. And all of that combined, when you say we're the only ones that have been with you in adversity in every single moment, they tear up. Mm. And, you know, this week, for some Australians, it's a cringe to talk about mateship. But let me tell you, this week, in the announcement, President Biden so on, how many times has he talked about 100 years, more mm. than 100 years to be biased? Every, when I came here, every, hardly anyone knew about the Battle of Hamel, you know, which was the 19th of October in, in 1918, which is the first time Americans ever fought seriously on the Western Front. And they fought under General Monash, 
And, you know, the Americans were ordered by Pershing to withdraw because they weren't going to fight under a foreign general. The Americans started peeling off their uniforms because they weren't going to abandon their new buddies from Australia. And that gets a tear. And and Monash left the attack until the 4th of July in gratitude to the Americans. Now, that's when Americans really do tear up. Right, right. And, you know, and... and, and Very very savvy call on Monash's part, don't you think? Well, yeah, Yeah. for sure. You know, God bless him. And um, to remind them of that and, you know, the dark days of Vietnam and Afghanistan and Iraq and powerful stuff. And you know what? Churchill always, you know, stubbornly defined it as a special relationship. And the Brits said, well, we've got a special relationship with the US. Let me tell you, we needed to define our relationship. We needed to define our relationship. Israel's done a great job. The Irish have done a phenomenal job here. The Brits, you know, even though, I mean, they did a Churchill defined it, you know, a special relationship in that famous speech in Fulton as well uh, about the Iron Curtain. We needed to define our relationship because, you know, Donald Trump didn't know mm. much about Australia at all. Mm. And we needed to explain to him why we mattered. And if he thought, oh, well, we just rescued you in World War Two, like he did Europe, well, we were gone. If you say, hang on, every dark moment you've had, we've been right by you. Yeah. And that was, you know, powerful stuff. Yeah. Don't let it go. Don't let him let it go, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> Not unconnected, Joe. You, you you have heard that Aspie is about to open an office in, in Washington. What advice would you have for us about how to make an impression in DC? Oh, be yourselves. Hmm? Be, be Australian. Get to know people, but just have a reasonable marketing budget, Australian wine, Australian food, yeah. and, you know, work closely with a great embassy and team here. And, uh, and also get out of Washington. You know, Australia has military personnel in 30 US states. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, that's a good starting point. So just for the Aspie team, uh, what's your favourite restaurant in DC? Joe's Seafood. Joe's Seafood. Favourite dish? Oh, stone crab. Legendary. <laughs> Best bookshop in DC? Oh, I don't know. There's a multitude of them. You're better off asking Kim Beasley. I mean, <laughs> he, 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 he was always there, but... Well, and, um, you'll, you'll have a view on this one. Best place to get coffee? You know, Bluestone Cafe, Aussie Cafe. Aussie Cafe, of course, of course. Well, on, on to more serious stuff. Um, where where are the growth opportunities in, in the relationship with the US today? Oh, unquestionably, Peter, in defence, intelligence, cyberspace, commercial activity. Uh, a lot of Australian businesses think they understand the US because, you know, they, they look at it as a big Australian market, but every state is different. And, you know, when I finished and and set up my firm, Bondi Partners, we were about facilitating Australian businesses coming into the US and US businesses better understanding Australia, even though it's a deep relationship, very deep. There's still a misunderstanding about how it works. So commercial opportunities are now for the first time, I think out of AUKUS, you're going to see a massive acceleration in technology transfers. Mm I know you have a personal interest in space and uh, obviously the Americans' massive civil and military capability in this sector. Mm. Do you you identify opportunities for Australia in in that area? Oh, they're huge. I mean, my business, Bondi Partners, you know, has grown into three different divisions. First one's consulting, which is consulting businesses coming here. The second is transactions and... uh, and we're doing, you know, well over $15 billion of transactions we're advising on. Hmm. But the third is um, 
that I've set up in partnership with Elliston Capital, uh, the first Defence Intelligence Cyber and Space Fund right. in Australia. Mm. And it's an investment fund uh, that uh, is looking at backing businesses that are going to be profitable and dual purpose. And we are partnering with, you know, InQtel, which is uh, the intelligence agency investment arms, main sequence and others to start investing in the things that really are going to protect our grandchildren and beyond. Mm. But also they've got to be profitable businesses and successful businesses. And uh, the money we're raising has is, is all been from high net worth individuals in the US and Australia. Mm. That's fascinating. What in your view could disrupt the relationship? I mean, for example, is it possible that, you know, John Kerry cuts a deal with China on climate that cuts across Australia's interests? Where, where are the sort of pressure points that we should be? Well, I think, I think, I think it's a bit like a marriage. You, you've got to have something to talk about <laughs> when you're so close, right? And you've got to have common interests and, and projects. And I think the danger is that you lull yourself into a sense of comfort, which I think Britain has done over the years and Canada has done at various times. I mean, even if you have a little bit of conflict, you have an argument with each other, you show you're relevant. And you see this like France now. I mean, sometimes the relationship was taken for granted and France had a tortured relationship with Donald Trump, even though they had the first state dinner. Mm. But Macron going to the capital and berating Trump was outrageous behaviour by the pre President Macron, if you remember. But France does well in, in sort of, you know, having the odd argument here and there with the US as they've done many times over the years. Israel does it, uh, and, 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 and Ireland does it with, you know, Codells and, and lots of visits back home and, and focusing on the ancestry. Australia doesn't have a whole lot of Australian people in, in Congress, but we've got a lot of affection, and I think what you've got to do is keep finding issues, issues where there might be differences, but you've got to keep finding projects to work on together. And uh, with AUKUS, there's no shortage in the submarines, but also commercially, uh, you know, there's, there's a raft of things we can do as well to, to keep front and centre. So, Joe, post-ambassadorial life, you've told us about uh, Bondi Partners. How, how are you spending your time? And, and uh, I mean, COVID must have had a massive impact on your ability to, to travel. So how are you getting around? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a hell, of, a hell of a ride in just 12 months. I mean, we've built the business with offices in um, Washington, D.C. and in Sydney and Canberra and L.A. and three divisions, as I talked about a little earlier. It's it's travel between countries is, is you know, frankly, when you're a CEO and you can't travel, you look for trusted people that can. Mm. And I've been able to be here. A lot of corporates in Australia know who I am and they've been able to pick up the phone at a, at a chief executive level and ask for advice or, or get some guidance. And Americans go into Australia as well. I mean, they haven't been able to go down. So they, they say, who do we know in the US? So that's worked in our favour, actually. But it's been frustrating for me doing two weeks of quarantine every time I go to Australia. Right. How many times, how many days have you spent in... I've done, it to, I've done it twice. And the last time I went down, I went straight into lockdown in Sydney. So I've probably spent more time in lockdown than any other Australian because I was all last year, uh, 2020 lockdown in the US, Australia was open. Come back to, the, you know, Australia this time and go into lockdown while the US is open. So You don't strike me as the sort of guy that would like quarantine very much, Joe, I have to say. Oh, no. Yeah. No, 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 no. No, Peter, I was peeling the walls. But, uh, <laughs> you know, if it makes my country safer, I'll do it, but. The, the long-term impact of locking people up is something that I think 
not enough people have been thinking about. And uh, you can see it. Everyone over here in the US is skittish and it's open. It's pretty much open. But people are on the streets, you know, the anger, the road rage. You can tell everywhere. There's, everyone's a bit skittish. And I know when I was in Australia with lockdown, people were getting skittish. And I think, you know, there's going to be some significant health issues and men, big mental health issues uh, arising out of out of the fallout, and we'll get the fallout. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, we're, this is a bit off topic, I suppose, but you can see that the, the mental health aspect is becoming much more prominent oh, yeah. oh. now. And um, I just think we're going to have to address how do we get out of this in, in a way before we get more of what we've seen in Melbourne over the course of the week, right? Oh, terrible, yeah. And, and look... People are frustrated, and I understand government's got a responsibility, but, you know, it's you've got to get the balance right. And no one knows because no one's been through this before. You know, it's a hell of a time to be a leader. And, you know, I feel some degree of sympathy for everyone that's had to lead through this because there's no playbook. You know, your primary responsibility is to protect your citizens, but you've also got to be fully aware of the impact of all your decisions. And, uh, you know, locking people up, uh, it might be fine if you're in a three-bedroom home, but if you're in a one-bedroom apartment by yourself or if you are um, you know, got a disability or if you've got no family, uh, I think it's, it's a massive impact, massive impact. Very true. Joe, it's been fascinating talking to you. I'm, I'm looking forward to when Aspie will be able to take you to that restaurant for uh, some of that prep. <laughs> Pretty good. And uh, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks, Peter, and thanks for the great work uh, that you guys do. I mean, it really is invaluable, and I'm really glad it's been recognised by the government. Well done, yeah. and I, I really look forward to partnering with you. Thank you, Andrew. Lovely to talk with you. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns, and money. We'll be back with another episode next week.